Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. This is the final episode of Season 10. Next season is Season 11. We'll be continuing where we left off with the Cthulhu Mythos. Check out pgttcm.com to find out the latest schedule and find out what's going on with People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and Black Clock Audio Tales. This episode, as always, is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Look cool this summer. Have a cool shirt. Have cool slippers. Um, look, stay warm this winter. Have cool slippers. Wear cool shirts. Your favorite shirts from your favorite cult films. Cool slippers that, you know, look like stuff that you like. Look around on BunnySlippers.com. I'm sure there's something... That you'll see and you'll go, oh my god, that I, I should get that for Henry. Henry loves that stuff. And you'll get it for Henry and Henry will be happy. I don't know who Henry is. I don't know who you are. But you're a listener. And if you want to help the support the show, eh, bunnyslippers.com isn't a bad way to go. Also, you can go to pgttcm.com and look for ways to help the show by either buying a shirt or donating something you can go to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate whatever you want to donate facebook me text me whatever and let me know that you donated something so i can make sure to let people know that you're a cool donator who's keeping this show going other people who are helping keeping this show going are the people who are volunteering to be on the show like Ken Height, Adam Scott Glancy, David Heath. It's super cool stuff. And thank you all for doing this and thanks everyone who's been listening over the last few years. It's it's about five years now that we've been doing PGTTCM and it's been a lot of fun. So let's get going with the Chocho and the Loigor. And uh, first up, we've got Ken, then we've got Scott, then we've got Dave. So I hope you enjoy this uh, exploration of the Loigor and the Chocho, mostly about the Chocho, but hey, here we go. All right, and we are back with Ken Height on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. We are going to be talking about some cannibalism. We're going to be talking about some uh folks or not folks but beings that have the same name but i'm not sure if they're connected but maybe i don't know anyway we're talking to ken height about the chocho and oh man i'm gonna mess this up again how do you say it again ken i say it loigor loigor all right okay now i'm sure that if i were welsh <laughs> i would have a better way to pronounce that double l at the beginning well, yeah. But I say it Loigor. That's what I say. That's because all Welsh people have forked devil tongues because of the fact they're descended from dragons. True. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's just science. Can't debate science. Nope. Not on this program. <laughs> that would be a different program. All right. So, uh, who, okay. So the Chocho, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll start with them. Uh, who, who came up with the Chocho originally? I mean, I, I first ran across them in a Delta Green book, and then I was like, wait a minute, this is in the other stuff too, and then was like, oh, all right. I ran across it through role-playing supplements first, but where does it come from? <laughs> I mean, the, the Chocho got invented 
uh, in a story called Lair of the Star Spawn okay. by uh, August Derleth and Mark Shorer. And I don't know enough about that um, uh, about that uh, project to know whether or not it was Mark Shore that came up with it and then Derleth Lovecrafted it up, or if um, uh, 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 Lovecraft um, uh, created the um, uh, or not Lovecraft, or whether. Um, uh, Durleth created the the Chocho and Mark Shore sort of added the psychic jungle adventure stuff. I don't know what goes on in that story, but it um uh, it, they sort of show up in Lair of the Star Spawn, um, and that is their 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 genesis. I think that the um the notion of them goes back to the Andaman Islander uh, in the Conan Doyle novel Sign of the Four. Okay who is, uh, he's a, a very, very short, um, uh, you would, I think that they, he's even called a dwarf at some point, but he's just that Andamaners are generally shorter than, than, uh, 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 Britain, British people. So they, you know, top off at five feet so we can sort of skulk around and, um, uh, shoot people with poison darts. And that's how the murders are con- committed in sign of four. And I think that sort of pings August Durleth's sensibility because Durleth was a big Sherlock Holmes fan. And he says, what if that, but cthulhu <laughs> right? And uh-huh. so they become the uh, uh, forbidden Chocho people and the lurking Chocho people. And then once he's come up with the idea of having this sort of Southeast Asian um, version of uh, Mackin's little people, I think then that's where they sort of blow up into Lair of the Starspawn. And Lair of the Starspawn is interesting because the Chochos they're they're still this sort of skulking savage race, but they've fallen from this great Lovecraftian height, mm-hmm. you know. And their leader Epo is a, a sort of a Fu Manchu character. He's you know uh, uh, very very psychically powerful, and he's kidnapping savants from all over the world, or actually from China and America, but still you know he's he's a chocho, and um uh, and so it's sort of a uh, a jungle adventure in the one sense, but it's also a Fu Manchu story. Okay. Um, and so it, it, they sort of sit, um, I don't say unevenly because the story works well enough, but it's not, it, it's not, you know, uh, across the black river or anything. It's, it's not a great story. Um, it, it does its job. It, it has a ridiculous Derlethian, um, uh, deus ex machina at the end. And so, you know, there's, there's some, some good stuff in it. And then that's the Chocho. That's pretty much all that they ever really um, uh, show up in. Um, okay. Every so often, um, they'll get a they'll get a, a shout out. Uh, and Lovecraft mentions them in Horror in the Museum, mm-hmm. so they're sort of you know uh, canonically in the in, in the in the mythos now. Um, and then really until T. E. D. Klein wrote Black Man with a Horn, they'd sort of been left fallow. Yeah, and then um, Lynn Carter, I think, also has some Cho-Cho stories where he puts them on Lang mm-hmm. and has them as sort of dream guardians of Lang um, uh, because uh, Lovecraft's letter to Block identifies uh, the Cho-Cho Lama of Lang. That's never established in the fiction, mm-hmm. but it is in Lovecraft's letter. And Lynn Carter, being a um, hyper-completist, thought, well, now that we have Cho-Chos and Lang, I'd better write about them. But... 
the 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 Lang and the Chochos, I think, are are two different things. Lovecraft maybe just conflated them because they were both bad Asia to him. Okay. But um, but it's really not until um, uh, until Lynn Carter that you get the notion that the Chochos have got any connection to Lang out there in the in the in the print. Um, and then. I guess most recently, like you said, there's a bunch of Delta Green stories about Chochos because they are Southeast Asian and Delta Green involves itself with the Vietnam War. And then at the um, uh, there's a, a guy named Pierre Comtois who wrote a story called Goat Mother that is sort of a deep dive into Chocho reproductive biology, okay. which is about as disgusting as you can imagine it, it yeah. must be. <laughs> and this is where with people like uh, Comtois's story, the Chochos become literally inhuman as opposed to just sort of uh, dangerously racist caricatures yeah. of Southeast Asian people. And it is that notion that Chochos are not human beings, but are a, either a parallel evolution, like the, the Java man, but that survives and, and is not Homo sapiens, but is Homo Javensis, mm -hmm. uh, or the notion that they are literally an alien construct that just live like people in the in the jungle, and that's where Pierre Comtois takes the story. Okay. And so, I think depending on what you want to do with the Chocho, you can um, uh, you you can sort of lean into the colonialist uh, uh, version and have good 19th century fun with that. But I think it probably behooves you if you're doing something. It, for 21st century audiences to maybe emphasize their literal inhumanity as much as you possibly can and still have the the effect work. Um, so, yeah, they begin as these sort of, like I say, colonialist sort of shorthand that uh, Doyle used really in Sign of Four. Mm -hmm. And then and I think certainly the high point of that is um, uh, is uh, Black Man with a Horn, which is sort of anthropological horror at, at great level. Um, with uh, uh, and by T.D. Klein, but then to go past Klein, you really have to sort of look for the in the literally inhuman uh, nature of the Chochos and and okay. try and focus on that. I mean, I, I I sort of had to think about it a good bit because I did the Chochos as one of the entries in uh, my Lovecraft bestiary, the hideous creatures. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're going to put actual people into a bestiary. That is problematic, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. And so I was very glad, for example, that Comtois and a couple of other writers had gone in the direction of um, uh, of, of, of making it not just a, a colonialist version of, of the Hmong or the Montagnards or people who didn't deserve that kind of behavior, uh, mm -hmm. that kind of treatment and turned it into, you know, an, an actual sort of a, a parasite, not just on, you know, white Western America but yeah. also a parasite on the people of Southeast Asia that um, that the, the people in Southeast Asia are, are, are victims in the same way that the people of Massachusetts are victims, that they have this festering uh, alien presence at the plateau of Sung mm -hmm. and they don't like it any more than you or I would if we lived in, you know, Arkham and had to deal with all the um, Nirlatha tapping around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that darn Nirlatha tapping. I hate it. Those locals have to deal with. They do. That's interesting stuff. That's interesting stuff. Now, um, something I keep, uh, I ran across just briefly when I was uh, starting on the Chocho was the uh, Ligor. Uh, li oh, how do you say that? Ligor. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> Thank you. Uh, and 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 Char, I believe it was the the twin right, obscenities. Yeah. Now the twin obscenities, Jar Loigor. Yeah. Uh, did did um, just something briefly that they the Chocho were somehow that those two were somehow responsible for the Chocho, and I, I don't know if that has like plateau of sung stuff or do you, do you know what i'm talking about or i mean I... in in sort of the theory of the in, in as present let me let me back this up sure, as sure. present in lair of the star spawn because obviously we're not dealing with something where you can sort of science it and say sure. well uh, here's the here's the actual anthropology <laughs> in in the story uh they worship the twin obscenity jar and loigor and these are two big Derlethian tentacle gods that live under the plateau of Sung. Um, I think there may be a sacred lake there, although that may be making things up. Um, but the, but they live there, and they are the sort of you know they're the, every everyone has their own mythos god, and so um, uh, 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 Derleth makes up Jar and Loigor, or Shor does. I don't know. Okay. And so that is, and those names just sort of sit there in the mythos, and I believe that um, uh, Durleth uses the term uh, Loigor a couple of other times in, in later fiction. So yeah, uh, Durleth mentions the god Loigor in a couple of his other stories, I think in the Sandwind Compact and a couple of other ones. And then um, when Colin Wilson, the British uh, enfant terrible, as he was at the time, mm -hmm. writes uh, uh, his uh, uh, book, The Outsider, he comes across the collection, The Outsider and Others, reads that and writes another book called The Strength to Dream, which is about uh, psychotic and neurotic care, uh, artists okay. and how this insanity is, is also the artistic fa faculty and that those are the same thing. And this is part of Colin Wilson's, you know, uh, ED fix that goes through his whole career. But so he, he, he describes Lovecraft in relatively generous terms as a, as a great artist and a great writer, and then says, well, obviously he was thoroughly insane, and that's why he was a great artist and great writer. And August Derleth took exception to this, writes to Colin Wilson and says, if you think it's so easy, why don't you write a mythos story and I'll, <laughs> and I'll publish it? And so um, uh, Colin Wilson writes um, The Return of the Loigor uh, as his uh, response uh, to the, actually, first he writes the Philosopher's Stone, which has no Loigor in it at all. Mm -hmm. um, but then he writes uh, Return of the Loigor, which, like Philosopher's Stone, has a mostly psychic possessing race that exists to counter the human ability to reach pure genius. Because in Wilson's cosmology, human beings can, uh, can approach genius and have the natural gift. We are just fooled by the universe into not doing it. Uh -huh. And so... He um, uh, personifies that fooling either as uh, bad ladies or bad dudes in his more conventional novels mm -hmm. or as uh, psychological beings like the Sath in uh, Philosopher's Stone and uh, the Loigor in Return of the Loigor. And in Return of the Loigor, he does what I think is one of the best jobs of doing a proper modernization at the time. It was 1969 of the sort of sex, Romer, global paranoia. Call of Cthulhu global paranoia into a, a modern and in his case psychologically attempting to be psychologically informed 
uh, story. And so when he presents the Loigor, they're no longer just one being in Burma that gets uh, burned alive by the Elder Things in Beetlejuice, mm-hmm. um, which is what happens, by the way, at the end of Lair of the Star Spawn, spoiler. Okay. Um, but, uh, but they are a race, a race of immaterial beings that are uh, the incarnations of pessimism. That because they live, they come from a, a galaxy in which um, uh, mentation and physics uh, are going, quote unquote, downhill. Um, they uh, come to Earth and they're they're sort of trapped in the rocks. They can't ramp around the way that they used to, but they can accelerate the downhillness of other people psychically. And that's sort of their their cool power. And so the notion is that if you get into psychic touch with the Loigor, the worst things in the world happen. You become suicidal. You become a homicidal madman. You get cancer. Um, it's just this sort of everything bad in the world, everything that is against art and against human potential is focused in these sort of creepy immaterial beings that are um, that, that dwell in stones. And if that sort of sounds, you know, uh, uh, Doctor Who-ish to yeah. you, that's probably because <laughs> I'll bet Terrence Dix read this uh, back in 1969, and um, uh, and and the guys who were doing classic Who were reading uh, Colin Wilson, and they were reading these stories, and so this sort of Doctor Who sensibility to use the to get the sword the wrong way around mm-hmm. is one of the things that I think makes the Loigor uh, seem so much cooler than just another, you know, but, oh, they're not fish people, they're monkey people or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's very, it's very neat. And um, then the Loigor, I think, were so big, especially in Britain, that um, uh, the Illuminatus uh, trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson mm-hmm. just used the term Loigor as the generic term for all of the great old ones and Grant Morrison uses it the same way. And whether he gets it from Colin Wilson or whether he gets it from Robert Anton Wilson, um, who who can say probably a little of both, but uh, Grant Morrison uses it in Zenith. And then Alan Moore does it similarly in uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen, that the Loigor becomes a generic term, meaning any mythos entity or that all the mythos entities are, are types of Loigor and that, uh, and, and that the Loigor is is just a, a a malevolent force that takes various forms, which is again sort of Colin Wilsony in this in the way that um, uh, um, the uh, 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 the Loigor um, uh, have a, a lot of different sort of modes of attack, down to even uh, literally detonating a earth-rending explosion. Um, at the at the most fundamental level, there's a a very good bit where they blow up a a camp of tinkers of itinerant uh, wandering uh, 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 beggars in uh, in Wales and and just level it. And the the description that that Wilson has, you know, that you know that you found something that after long study turned out to be a foot, and it's like, oh God, yeah. Colin, stop messing with me. <laughs> and so the and so the Loigor are really, really well done in, in Wilson. And then people, I think, because he did it so well, have sort of backed away. And in uh, the Call of Cthulhu, they focus on something that is just hinted at in, in Wilson, that the Loigor can make physical forms. And so they become dragons and uh, Loch Ness monsters and things like that with psychically 
um, uh, 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 bringing all the molecules together to build these sort of psychic forms or astral okay. forms. Okay. And that's um, uh, and that's really what they wind up as in sort of most Call of Cthulhu adventures is this sort of, um, oh, it's a dragon, but also it's a magic ghost in a rock. And okay. uh, again, I think that that's great, but it but it really underutilizes Colin Wilson's uh, just really amazing thing. I mean, I, I make fun of him, uh, but it's entirely out of love and respect. Uh, he's really just a an amazing talent, and we are very lucky that August Derleth Double Dog dared him to write <laughs> mythos fiction. That's really cool. I Yeah, I, I didn't realize that there was so much Ligor... Yeah, no, that's 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 pretty cool. It's 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 I I've I've seen the name in print so many times and to realize that it has it's it's like all connected but also not connected but also yeah. still connected in one way or the other. But yeah, yeah. And, and and in that way, the sort of four or five contradictory explanations makes it a more apropos mythos creature yeah. than Cthulhu, where everyone knows what Cthulhu looks like so much that you can make. A, a plush doll of him, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? That Loigor should be something where it's like, he's a God, it's a species, it's all the species, it's all the gods. That that sort of level of mystery and, and unknowingness and argumentation and literal contradiction, only Sathagwa does that really in the in the sort of classic mythos. Yeah. Uh, what we talked about previously that, you know, uh, Clark Ashton Smith's Sathagwa and Lovecraft's Sathagwa were two different Sathagwas mm-hmm. and we have the same name and then uh, Lynn Carter's and, and Call of Cthulhu's have to sort of figure out, justify why both of them can be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because if there was two bits of literature, Lynn Carter would have to figure out how to connect them. Yeah. <laughs> Fill in the blanks. <laughs> Fill in the blanks. Color it all in. <laughs> well, has, we don't have any prayer books. <laughs> all right, Ken, thank you again for talking about... Uh, Zar, Ligor, and the Chocho people. Is 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 there anything else that you think that the people should know before I I, uh, I, I kick you off? I mean, I think I, I've um, uh, I've made my point that you really want to read T. E. D. Klein's uh, Black Man with a Horn, and you really really want to read uh, Colin Wilson's Return of the Loigor. Those are the great ones. Uh, reading the Derleth origin stories. I mean, there's like I say, there's nothing wrong with Lara the Star Spawn, mm-hmm. but there's nothing really right with it either. Um, if you if you want to read it, go ahead. But I mean, if you want to read what real great writers do with these kind of concepts, you know, hit Klein, hit Wilson and, uh, you know, count yourself lucky. Very cool. Thanks again, Ken. No problem. All right. As always, it is great to hear from Kevin Height and have to, Ken on the show. If you want to check out anything else that Ken does, just search for Ken Height on the internet and you'll find all kinds of projects. One of my personal favorites is Trail of Cthulhu by Pelgrane Press, part of the Gumshoe system. And also, why not check out Ken Height's podcast over at uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Hey, while we're uh, advertising stuff for people... Let's advertise some stuff for Scott Glancy. Scott Glancy, Delta Green. That's all you got to know. Delta Green, Scott Glancy. That's what you're going to find. Hey, speaking of Scott Glancy, listen to this guy. L- listen, listen to this guy talk about anthropology and cannibalism and dwarves and eh, how Loigor isn't really that interesting. It was just pretty much a spaghetti monster. Oh, wait a minute. That's what Ken Height said, too. Anyway, 
Here we go with uh, the Chocho and Scott Glancy. Welcome to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Scott Glancy, who's been on the show before. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Good. Good, good. good. Uh, I'm uh, recovering from some writing, and uh, oof, I... uh, uh, am preparing to go out tonight and uh, do a, a performance at a at a traveling show called Body Storytelling, thing uh, organized by a lady named Dixie De La Tour, uh-huh. who takes this show on the road. It's just what it sounds like. It's like the moth. It's like storytelling at the moth, uh-huh. only inappropriate and filthy. Nice, so- nice. And everyone who's listening, uh, this this happened a couple weeks back. So, yeah, unless you have a time machine. Oh, yes, you cannot travel in time back to Thursday, January 16th. Sorry about that. Yeah. But it sounds like fun. It sounds like fun. I'm going to have to uh, check out, uh, check that out. Yeah. It is a, it is a really interesting show. Um, I've been going to it for years uh, when she brings it to Seattle. People who have surprising or unusual, you know, relationships or encounters, things like that. But mm-hmm. um when people talk about things that are just like, uh, you know, a little more personal, a little more, you know, I don't know. Well, I guess to say, you know, people get pretty vulnerable up there when they tell these, some of their stories about uh-huh. them coming out, having a moment of meeting the person that they always wanted to meet or meeting the exact opposite. <laughs> There's a particular performer whose name I, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on who told this story about uh, being in some sort of, I'm trying to remember what he was attached to, whether it was a, a circus or if it was a burlesque or what, but he was attached to some traveling show, right? That was kind of like, I, I hate to call it a circus, or but, but um, he ends up in some place like Uzbekistan and on this traveling show, post, post-Soviet Uzbekistan, which isn't particularly better than Soviet Uzbekistan. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to talk after the show and I was like telling him about how I was there back when it was still when they still had uh, busts of Lenin yeah. out front of every official building. I was there in 89, and, and you know, he's there in the 2000s, and it is a world of difference insofar as that the, the Uzbeks that I encountered when I was there looked like they were standing around just looking at their watches waiting for the Soviet Union to fall. Yeah, the Russians have been here for a while. They'll be gone soon, and we'll yeah. go back to doing things the way we want to do them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, he talked about hooking up, uh, meeting and hooking up with another guy in Uzbekistan. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, he's telling the story. I don't know if the rest of the audience had the same reaction to, to, to me, but I'm thinking, dude, you could die. You know, um, this is Uzbekistan. Uh-huh. Uh, they're tyrants, you know, um, that they have over there who are running that show. Lean in hard to the, uh, uh, the the local religious conservatives mm-hmm. in order to buy themselves the political capital that they need to steal all the money in the country mm-hmm. the, from the gas industry, right? I yeah. mean, that's just how it works. You, you lean into the most reactionary forces, and as long as those guys, uh, you know, uh, there's a government policy to be mean to and shitty to all the people that the local mullah who's running the, the, the mosque doesn't like, then they turn a blind eye to the massive corruption and the, the enormous amounts of human rights violations. And so mm-hmm. he's telling this story about, you know, trying to meeting uh, this guy at the show uh, and uh, this uh, Uzbek, 
a weightlifter or a powerlifter mm-hmm. or something and trying to find a way that the two of them didn't get together. And I'm just like, listen to this thing going, well, you're here, so I know you didn't die. But this story could just go off the rails. And then it's like, and then, you know, uh, uh, and then whatever his name is gets arrested, you know, mm-hmm. and dragged off by the secret police. But yeah, uh, Bonnie's an interesting, uh, an interesting place. And I finally have a... a uh, a story to tell that's a really a, not just not really it's not really Dixie complaints she's like I don't know there's not a lot of sex in this story and it's really not a sex story it's more like a story about how people tell stories okay you know, <laughs> about how you you, you know because that's you know that's my primary thing as a as someone who's been a developer in role-playing games. I mean, role-playing games are collaborative storytelling. Mm-hmm. As a result, uh, and and then, of course, just straight-up fiction uh, is storytelling. Yeah. And uh, there are ways that we present stories um, in fiction that we can bury the lead. We can um, tell stories out of uh, chronological order. Mm-hmm. And um, the result is is that well, we get a... a I'll say truthful uh, result mm-hmm. uh, in that we didn't lie to the reader, to the person who's hearing or experiencing the story. But at the same time, um, we're able to sort of manipulate people uh, into different conclusions to, and to anticipations that maybe do not pay off. Yeah. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's harder to do that, of course, with role playing games because, of course, everything's in chronological order. And the players uh get to choose what they're going to read and in what order you know they're if they don't like how this part of the story is going they can skip it they can jump around in ways uh that uh you know a normal fiction experiencer cannot so anyways uh yes it's a lovely day i think that's the bottom line but we're not here (laughs) storytelling we're not here to talk about um uh dixie adulator we're here to talk about uh, the Loigor. Yeah. And, and the, and the, uh, uh, shows. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, what is it that you wanted to, to, to ping me for on the subject of these two, uh, rather, you know, multi-layered mythos critters? What do you, what, what, what is it about them that appealed to you or got you to put them together for one thing? Well, I, <laughs> I've kind of been going through a, if, if, if you take all of the mythos stories that are kind of out there that most people can get their hands on still, mm-hmm. uh, if, if you take where they are chronologically and you line it all up, I've been going through stuff bits and pieces here and there, and it's from like the starting of our universe to the, you know, the cooling of our sun, uh, the spider people who live inside of Earth's crust that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, we're just getting into uh, Ligor and uh, the Chocho people, the creation of the Chocho people. And that's something that I wanted to talk to you and Ken Hyde about. Ken Hyde, I talked about the background and uh, all the uh, literature references and who's this and where's that and how it was used. And Lynn Carter did this and all that fun stuff. And I wanted to talk to you about more of the uh, kind of like how the Chocho are used in storytelling, how, who, it, who they are, uh, what is Ligor, who is Ligor, kind of, like... Well, are you looking for the Tsar uh, uh, and Ligor, the Twin Obscenities, or are you looking for Colin Wilson's Ligor from the return of the Ligor? Because the first person to use them, the Ligor, of course, are um, August Derleth and whoever his 
his ghostwriter was at the uh-huh. time. Uh, his name is escaping me because it wasn't, if I remember correctly, um, the Lair of the Star Spawn is uh-huh. a story that both the Loigor and the Chocho turn up in yeah. for the first time. And um, uh, Colin Wilson comes in, I guess, 20 years later and um, recycles the name Loigor. Mm-hmm. For for his stuff. So which one are we looking into? Here? Oh, we're, we're we're definitely going with the uh, Ligor that's related to the Chocho. I myself get confused. So <laughs> okay, but more that's of a, cool. a, a modern concept of the Chocho, like um, I guess. Um, I do I do want to want, want to drop one bomb about Colin Wilson's The Return of the Ligor. Sure. Um, because uh, it's uh, I. It's been a while since I've read. Uh, both Return of the Loigor and uh, The Lair of the Star Spawn. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a better recollection of, uh, I guess maybe, I don't know, I maybe have a better recollection of Return of the Loigor, which is set in like 1968. Mm-hmm. And the Return of the Loigor is set in a world where H.P. Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft exists, his stories exist, but he was writing about real things. You know, it's one of those story mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. The Necronomicon is real, yeah, uh, and part of it is the Voynich manuscript. So gotcha. it brings up the, the Voynich manuscript. But I've, I gotta tell you, Colin Wilson's uh, key to translating the Voynich manuscript, uh-huh. if I remember correctly, is. Oh, I get it. The script in the Voynich manuscript is just partially erased uh, Arabic. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? That's the ticket? Is It's Arabic that some of the fiddly bits have been uh, erased or knocked off the page? Because, like, you and I... Yeah. If you were given a bunch of... Uh, uh, if you were given a bunch of Latin... Uh, letters on a page, but we erase some of the parts, but they're all in the right order to make words. <laughs> I think we could figure it out. And and Colin Wilson's like, you know, a thing where his, his, his main character is like, I'm a brilliant academic that has figured this out. I'm like, no. This is the lamest. Oh my God! It's like, what, what, is everybody else in academia have head injuries or something? Are they all just stumbling around with concussions? That this is this guy figures it out. Oh, it's just, it's bad. <laughs> okay, it's super bad. Good to know. Good to know. And I was like, wow, that stuff. That that stuff was hack even back then. <laughs> yeah, and 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 Wilson's Loigor. Yeah. Unfortunately, when I read them, and it may, it, it, and and based on some of the things that. Colin Wilson gets into a certain uh, certain kinds of uh, occultism and mm-hmm. spirituality later in his life that really makes the Loigor and his story out to be to smell like he 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 he, he ripped them off from L. Ron Hubbard's Thetans. Ooh, you know how Thetans make everything terrible in mythology. <laughs> yeah, there's an there's an aspect of that in Colin Wilson's Return of the Loigor, where the, 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 the invisible, immaterial um, uh, uh, Loigor uh, make everything bad uh, for humanity or the source for all of our worst impulses and uh, our worst um, uh, uh, behaviors, particularly 
if we're Welsh. There's this whole thing where he slags the Welsh as being the descendant of the slaves of the Loigor because they have too many consonants and there's a dragon on their flag, which he also hooks into the Loigor. Right. But it's uh, slagging the slagging the, 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 the Welsh and gypsies. And all okay. I can think of is like, okay, this is getting this, – this is halfway between – uh, L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology and Dianetics, and on the other side is like Romania's fascist Iron Guard that was worried about, you know, gypsies because they didn't have enough Jewish people to freak out about in the 1930s. But anyways, I'm not I'm not sure how I feel about that. Anyway, so let's go on to Czar and Loigor, the twin obscenities who live under, I think, the Lake of Dread okay. on the plateau of Sung. Yeah. Burma, surrounded by the Chocho people. Um, let's see. Uh, the and I'm not sure who adds what to uh-huh. uh, the stories. Um, my first uh, encounter with the Chochos was from a better source. Okay. Um, it was from T. D. Klein's Black Man with a Horn. All right. Uh, he writes about the Chochos. In that story, as the servants, the the, the worshippers of uh, a avatar of Narathotep called mm-hmm. Shugaron, and um, I picked up on that and used it for a section in the uh, 1998 Delta Green Book countdown, yeah. the section Tong Shugaron, which was uh, uh, sort of a related to. Um, I guess, uh, oh, uh, shoot, I'm suddenly forgetting the guy's name who wrote the, uh, the, the drug war of the black tong. Um, that's Richard, oh my goodness, I'm suddenly forgetting his name, which is not good because he's a long time, uh, mythos author and Robert editor. M. Price? Price, that's it, Robert M. Price. Price wrote some pulpy, you know, vaguely Fu Manchu-y stuff involving the, the sugar on because in the original story, they're from Burma and Asia, and so they, they, they have been occasionally hijacked to perform the same function that uh, dudes from Asia perform to give you that yellow peril, yeah. you know, vibe, if somebody's looking for that in their story. Um, but... Uh, I've always been sort of pleased with the um, Chochos in that they are um, – some people have knitted things about them being related to the Miri Negri, which, which, is, uh, which are these uh, sort of constructs mm-hmm. uh, uh, created by um, Chognar Fon, mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that right, and the sons of Chognar Fon. Um, I think they, they 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 start off in the Chagnarfon's uh, lair in the Pyrenees and are spread across the war or the 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 Eurasian continent by Chagnarfon's migration from the Pyrenees to I guess the Himalayas or the mountains of central China, um, and so there's an implication that the the, the Chochos are somehow um, not fully human. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Like that. Uh, deep one hybrids are not fully human and are yeah. tainted by the blood of aliens or um, unnatural sort of humunculus-like constructs. Certainly that's sort of the implication on the Mary Negri is that they are um, like 
I guess it's fair to call them like um, homunculuses, mm-hmm. like something created in a, in a lab. But um, uh, so they technically they don't they're not really a human mm-hmm. race, and so as a result. Um, you can get away with using them in the stories for a lot of racist bullshit because yeah. you, know, you can imply certain characteristics that are immutable to their kind, um, their sadism, their 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 uh, worship of the great old ones, uh, their nefarious and murderous uh, tendencies, their willingness to engage in all manner of. Uh, criminality and antisocial behavior mm-hmm. um you know and you can apply it all and you can say well it's, it's their culture they're raised believing this but you know even in the um original i guess maybe six edition that's when i looked i guess it was six edition uh rules was the chochos you know are a sort of i think there's something about they're born with half the sand points of anybody else and then mm-hmm. the activities that they they they, they start doing uh, whittles them down to zero relatively quickly and then you know uh, they go on to be awful um, the chochos are described essentially um, as dwarves um, pygmies yeah um, in uh, in Lair of the Star Spawn and in subsequent stories um, and when I went back last night and did some reading, um, I noted that uh, there was uh, some, some discussion of saying that they also um, had sort of a, a, a deep red skin, mm-hmm. uh, maybe brick colored. And I don't remember that from the short story, but I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say, well, okay, I just don't remember that. Um, and that seems like a bit of a, a giveaway uh, to, to, for player characters if there's uh, Chocho, what do you call them? Uh, immigrants mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. And you're like, Who, who's the bad guy? Well, there's a lot of short people, but let's definitely do something about the short people with the brick red skin. They're probably the bad guys. Um, it seems a little bit easy to pick them out to me. Mm-hmm. But, anyways, um, let me see here. Um, if I, I, I think it's. Um, uh, I, uh, I think it's Klein's. Klein brings them up in Black Man with a Horn, mm-hmm. and first of them is the Chow Chow, which is, leads to a lovely um, series of writers, including those of us over at Delta Green, finding ways to mess with the name Chocho mm-hmm. so that it's not perfectly translated. It's not. It doesn't always remain Chocho. Uh, Chochoans, I think, was one version of the tribal, you know, the name that's applied to them. And some of our stuff, um, and um, uh, I th- think at some point, I think it was Klein's story that says the Chochos are um, that Cho is some sort of hill Burmese hill tribes um, uh, or Malaysian word for sorcerer or or destruction or. And so uh, their name means the destructive sorcerers because mm. the word can have two names or the sorcerers are destroying or something. But they're bad. They're destructive sorcerers. So they definitely get the the magic aspect. And that's really where one of the biggest things about Cho-Cho's jumps out at me. And that is the place of dwarves uh, in mythology and mm-hmm. uh, history uh, as relates to magic. 
there's a lot from mythology and folklore that uh, puts the uh, puts dwarves uh, out there as as sorcerers. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Rumpelstiltskin, I think, is a dwarf or a hunchback or something. And um, are you familiar with the House of the Magician at uh, Ushmal? No. Okay, Ushmal is a site in, um, I guess, Mexico, uh-huh. um, in the Yucatan, and um, Ushmal has a has a, a really unusual uh, stepped pyramid called the House of the House of the House of the Magician, hmm. uh, or House of the Sorcerer, sometimes. And um, unlike other um, Stepped pyramids uh, in Central America. I mean, it does have a big roof comb on the top, but it's not. It's it doesn't have a square base like a regular pyramid. Hmm. It has an it has a base that is basically shaped like an oval, and yet each oval section is is a stair, one stair all the way around. So it has this very odd. Uh, oval base that comes up to a you know uh, uh, a platform at the top, and the legend about this pyramid is that it was built in one night by a, a dwarf who I want to say emerged from the spiny you know dry forests of the Yucatan hmm. to uh, sort of announce its uh, I say it because I don't remember if there was a gender applied to the uh, to our dwarf, um, uh, but uh, the dwarf shows up and announces their power, and somebody challenges him, said, "Ah, you're full of baloney." And the dwarf says, "Well, I'm just going to, I can, I can you know, prove that you're a magician, prove that you're a sorcerer." And the next morning, a pyramid has a, has has emerged from the earth and uh, taken its place in the city. Um, uh, so. You also go back and you talk about, like, in uh, Indonesia, there's a lot of talk about dwarves being bad and scary. And uh, we've recently started digging up those uh, really small human ancestors mm-hmm. uh, that some people in the press were calling hobbits. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, how the local Indonesians wiped them out. Well, once you wipe out a people... The, the immediate thing you need to do is justify wiping them out uh-huh. uh, by saying, well, they were bad. I mean, they did all the bad things. They they made the, the goats uh, throw their kids too early and they spoiled the cream and they put, you know, blood in the matzah and, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the blood libel du jour is, you know, um, they weren't sending their best, you know, uh, I, I think that's basically it. So you come up with your, your your smear job to say why the 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 weird little pygmy tribe that you know uh, lived in the area had to be destroyed, and the answer is is they were bad magicians and things like that. And so certainly that has an attachment to the churches, as does some of the mythology about pygmies in Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there is a lot of noise amongst. I mean, the others. Yes, there are are are, are pygmies who have. Uh, uh, integrated into the rest of surrounding African culture, but there are also pygmies who, in Africa, as I understand, still live apart from the tribal structures and the governmental structures in places like uh, the Congo. Mm-hmm. And I remember some stories, sensational stories coming out about how um, 
there were attacks on pygmy villages by um, the various insurgent groups working in the Congo. I want to say, you know, back in the 90s, turn of the century, and that pyg- pygmies were getting eaten by uh, the normal people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they supposedly had magic, and if you ate the pygmy, then you wouldn't get shot. You know, it'd be some sort of crappy black magic connection to it. It's much like, um, much like the way albino children uh, have been sort of put on the 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 target list as as magical ingredients mm-hmm. in certain folklore in Africa. Um, or twins, you know, there's this whole thing about that as well. That. They are that that those kids are unnatural and therefore are touched by the outside, uh, the forces of the gods. And so, if you uh, you know put their blood in a magic potion, you get their power, you know, or or something like that. And certainly, that had happened to the pygmies. But again, the pygmies are being you know in Africa are being attributed to having magical powers. And so, there's definitely a tradition of you know uh, of shorter than normal humans being uh, being smeared with this idea that they're magic. And the Chochos pick that up um, where they are uh, they are uh, uh, in touch with the great old ones. They carry the blood uh, of the great old ones even in their veins and they uh, they sort of uh, are able to fill a couple of roles um, in the storytelling and the and even the gaming and that they are they uh, sort of are the magical touched race um, or tribe uh, that is up to no good um, that can never be trusted that are always bad that sort of you know but but don't worry they're not really you know humans and they're not really attached to Asia or Asians, or Africans, or even people from the Pyrenees, in case somebody wants to, uh, to slag uh, the, um, oh, uh, uh, the Basque people, you know, as well, um, who are also outsiders and considered weird and bad, and, you know, by the some of the Spanish, and treat them, you know, like gypsies and outsiders. So mm-hmm. they... they, they the, the churches get to provide some of that um, xenophobia... Uh, while <laughs> while also providing plausible deniability to just good old fashioned you know racism, mm-hmm. uh, in my humble opinion, uh, and the and I, I say that having used them exactly that way myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I when I use them for Tong Chagron in uh, you know um, uh, uh, Delta Green Countdown. Uh, you know, there was this whole idea that they, these uh, people from sort of like Malaysia and Burma uh, had uh, infiltrated their way into the um, uh, various peoples like the the Montagnards and the Hmong, mm-hmm. who were our allies in Vietnam and were fleeing the communists, and uh, because they had helped us. And then paid by you know the CIA and the you know worked with the Green Berets, and so they're fleeing the communist government in Vietnam now, and they find themselves over here in the states. And uh, the Chocho, I have the Chochos uh, sort of 
hiding amongst them or trying to. Uh, the Hmong and the Montagnards know mm-hmm. that they're not real uh, people. The Hmong and the Montagnards, uh, you know, sort of, uh, in my story, abjure them and, and curse them and put up, you know, put up, uh, you know, gris and, you know, mark their doorways to keep the uh, evil dwarves from the jungle away. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, I have the Chocho showing up in... America and having America being too dumb to be able to tell the difference between the Montagnards, you know, and these various uh, uh, hill tribes of of Vietnam and these interlopers who are uh, using this to spread their their uh, evil Cthulhu worshiping stain across mm-hmm. the world. Um, so uh, I, you know, so I've used them that way. Um, while simultaneously trying to make sure that when it comes to actual uh, groups of Asian immigrants, they're the ones sounding the alarm saying, no, hey, guys at, you know, immigration, um, naturalization, maybe you should do something about these guys. And, uh, you know, then INS comes and sweeps up everybody in the neighborhood whose papers are not in order and, um, you know, uh, no good can come of that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I have used them in the same way um, uh, as, as uh, sort of, you know, uh, ways to have xenophobia without um, it being specifically attached to real people and real cultures. Um, so certainly they have that big use. Um, are we on the right track? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. The next point I was uh, hoping to hit was like uh, cannibalism, long pig and all that. Yeah, that is their big thing. Yeah. Um, they're, they're brought in, they're definitely brought in to scare everybody with cannibalism. Yeah. And um, uh, whichever one is, cannibalism is one of those great taboos that everyone has and yet everyone has um, had to engage in mm-hmm. at one time or another. Um, uh, you know, under the British Admiralty's law of the sea, cannibalism was not a crime uh, when you are shipwrecked and certain conditions are met and mm-hmm. suddenly it's okay uh, to be a cannibalism, uh, be a cannibal yeah. if you're all trapped in a boat or whatever. Um, the Donner Party, you mm-hmm. know, where they ate they ate their dead. They didn't kill anybody, but they certainly ate their dead. Um, the uh, I think of um, uh, when the Spanish were crashing around the Caribbean. Uh, right after discovering the New World, they wanted to enslave all the locals, but the uh, I can't remember if it was the Jesuits or who it was, was like, no, 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 we, we, we need to convert them, you know? <laughs> we, need to con- we need to increase our, our base, you know? This is a whole world that we can spread the universal, you know, Catholic Church to. No, you can't work them to death mining for gold that isn't there. And the one of the one of the things that came up was, in that period of time, was some decree where from the royals in Spain that, you know, all right, we, you cannot enslave uh, people who can be converted, mm-hmm. but cannibals can't be converted. Hmm. So if they're cannibals, you can burn their village, uh, steal them, put them in chains, and make them dig up the island of Espanola looking for gold that's not there. 
Hmm. So it should come as no surprise that the Spanish suddenly discovered that all of the Carib Indians were cannibals. <laughs> and that's why we don't have any Carib Indians mm-hmm. today. That's why those islands are inhabited by a people descended from Africa. Because once they got done murdering all the Caribs uh, for being cannibals or murdering them through, you know, forced labor, mm-hmm. um, they ran out of forced labor and had to steal some more or buy some more, or, you know, off of uh, Africa uh, to repopulate those islands so they could continue to exploit them. So cannibalism becomes political there. Cannibalism is a big no-no in the American Indian world, as I understand it, and I've always wondered if it's connected to uh, the Anasazi, because the, there's some evidence to suggest that the Anasazi became cannibals. Um, they, you know, there's all these bone sharing. You know, they, they have a civilization, and then one day all their buildings are empty. And there's been some really interesting scholarship to suggest that uh, the Anasazi got hit with climate change, and they had three or four bad harvests in a row, and that's it. Their civilization's over with. Mm-hmm. Um, they could no longer support their population base. People are dying left and right. They began to not bury the dead, but uh, consume the dead. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the big things they point out are all these bone shards, where they found these human bone fragments that have been worn down with a kind of smoothness that suggests that the bone fragments were put in a pot and stirred. Hmm. And if your cannibalism is that you are smashing bones to bits in order to boil the last of the protein out of the marrow, mm-hmm. this isn't some kind of recreational religious uh, cannibalism mm-hmm. like sometimes happened in Central America where uh, parts of sacrifices were consumed by the upper classes as a kind of uh, do as the gods do and then you'll be as the gods sort of thing. Um, the Anastasi could have been could have had like <laughs> two years of nothing but Truckee Lake, you know, mm-hmm. like the Donner Party. And 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 until they they simply had to abandon uh, their sites and move someplace else ultimately. And that there's a suggestion that, you know, that uh, uh, the Anasazi's uh, you know sort of bad reputation um, and their sites having a bad reputation is as spiritually unclean might be related to the fact that a terrible tragedy occurred there, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so cannibalism is just a giant taboo, which, you know, thanks to the internet is also apparently a fetish now Ah. because he had the German fella who murdered somebody. And we had a New York city cop who was apparently using the assets of the NYPD to find, to, 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 research particularly tasty looking people oh gee. Uh, yeah yeah i i don't think he uh got convicted oh but he was but um uh he may have i i, I don't know man the police union in new york city is pretty strong maybe they didn't even discharge him from the nypd maybe uh officer bonesucker is still <laughs> on the job you know uh, i don't know because they didn't they they, they his defense was it's a it's a kinky fetish. It's not. Um, I'm not planning to murder people. I'm yeah. not uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. You know. Um, so yeah, cannibalism turns up in our 
are, are serial killers amongst mm-hmm. the bad. Uh, it scares the crap out of us mm-hmm. um, because we could be crap. I mean, ultimately, there's this thing about cannibalism where you, your knowledge, your potential, your your experience, your character are going to end up being shit out somewhere. Yeah. And uh, it is it is a a, a horrifying idea that uh, that whatever you are suddenly has no value of beyond your protein count and your fat count that you are devalued as an individual, you know, um, and, and, you know, possibly also your identity is erased. You have no grave, you know, mm-hmm. you have no place that, that, that you would be remembered, you know, um, you're also depersonalized if you know, on the grounds that if you look at say how, uh, animals uh, are prepared, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a carcass. Uh, the heads and the ha- heads and the feet are gone usually. Yeah. Um, uh, without a head and hands, and without skin, uh, a human carcass, a human body, starts to become indistinguishable from those animal carcasses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think everybody is horrified by the obliteration of their individuality, the obliteration of their personality and their their, their personhood uh, like that. It's, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a uh, particularly um, uh, uh, personal and disturbing kind of horror, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, it has uh, terrified me on those bounds, on those grounds. You know, um, that's the parts about it that I find uh, most disturbing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I, you know, again, boy, I certainly exploited some of that in a short strike called uh, Trespassers. Uh-huh. But a British expedition in like the 1890s or 1880s that finds itself into the plateau of Song or, or uh, Lang. Uh, depending on how you want to interpret it and mm-hmm. uh, encounter the Chochos who are supposed to be up there on the plateau of Lang as well, which may or may not exist in the Dreamlands as well with the men of Lang who may or may not be how the Chochos dream themselves in the yeah. Dreamlands. You know? huh. But um, yeah, the cannibalism is uh, is definitely in there. Uh, Chaosium added to that with their, their human ganglia paste. Okay. <laughs> recipe that turns up uh, in um, at your door because uh, the chochos are in that scenario the human ganglia paste turns mm-hmm. up as a, a dish that they do not advertise as human ganglia paste but yeah. turns up in their, their restaurant that can be fed to the investigators um, but um, yeah um, and um, the the uh, uh, I was going to also mention about cannibalism. It reminds me a little bit of um, uh, Larry Niven and Jared Parnell's uh, Lucifer's Hammer. Mm-hmm. In that, there's this thing in the story. It's a post-apocalyptic story, and there's a group of army deserters uh, who think they're going to come and take over a farm community and become the new uh, medieval warlords. 
of the area. But uh, it doesn't work out. They can't seem to find a place to take over, and they're starving. And they end up eating their dead, and they end up eating uh, people that they uh, encounter and, and rob. And then at some point, when they gain enough strength, uh, they continue the practice of cannibalism in their new gang. Hmm. Not as a, because they're, they need to, because they're no longer, I mean, they, they get to a point where they are strong enough to roll over communities and uh, cannibalism becomes a way for them to ensure loyalty to the gang. Everyone uh, is given a choice at the end of the battle. You can either cut up your, your, your own dead uh, for the stew that we're all going to eat, all of us, or you can go in the stew. That's those are your options, and they use that as a way to enforce loyalty. And then now that people have been a cannibal, yeah, and eaten somebody, they're afraid to leave the gang because they think they will never be accepted in another community. They will mm-hmm. always be seen as a danger, as an outsider who can never come back, uh, never reapply. For admission into the human race, um, and uh, uh, certainly with the Chochos, there was—I don't think there was any implication that the Chochos ate other Chochos. Yeah, they only ate people which they see as inferior, as they see as as not uh, worthy uh, of being treated as as people, mm-hmm. as because they don't carry the blood of the great old ones, or they don't practice magic and so they are inferior and this is despite the fact that chochos are living in loincloths and using uh stone and flint spears they still see themselves as superior to the people who are flying in airplanes and, and uh you know splitting the atom mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, see those people as not deserving of of respect um so yeah cannibalism is a big thing in them and it is a it's a monster t- taboo, and Lovecraft brings it up a couple times in his own writings. I mean, pictures in the house mm-hmm. uh, is a big and and I would also suggest that anthropophagy, if not cannibalism, is certainly part of the ghoul mythology. Yeah, uh, and it's sort of kind of cannibalism because it's a way that people can become ghouls. Mm-hmm. Sort of kind of, it's implied that you know that and we've used it for Delta Green that you could become a ghoul through contact with the kind of prion a kind of prion disease that will be activated uh, in you by contact with not just cannibalism but it has to be cannibalism of meat that has uh, turned that has rotted I don't remember any of that from the Chochos mm-hmm. um, they cook their they're civilized they cook their food. <laughs> they don't allow it to get that gamey flavor um, but, uh, uh, yeah, um, the, uh, the, the, certainly the cannibalism is a massive part of the story. Uh, they're sometimes described in fiction and in uh, game material as having filed teeth, which is always the classic, uh, you know, cannibals have, uh, the pointy teeth thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably scarier if their teeth aren't filed, they appear to be filed and like, no, that's just natural, dude. That's that's just how their teeth are, you know. They just have these creepy, weird, serrated edge teeth, like shark's teeth or something. Possibly with a second robot. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, there's that. That's that's a big one. Uh, what else are you looking for on the show shows? 
I don't know. Uh, what do you think people should know about the Chochos? I mean, uh, we've covered most, I think, all the bases I've wanted to uh, try and uh, touch today. Yeah, um, uh, they definitely, you know, I guess the main thing is they definitely fill, fill uh, the place of dwarves in mythology as uh, as bringers of, I mean, kind of like even some ways we imagine uh the ways we imagine uh, leprechauns and uh, the wee people, the fairy folk, in some ways they're, they're attached to that in that, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the, the gentry, the fairy of, of, of the um, Gaelic mythology uh, aren't super cool. I mean, <laughs> they're they they're not here to give you cereal. They're they're here to steal your children if mm-hmm. you do not show them respect. And you need to leave offerings out so they don't fuck you up. You yeah. know, you leave out the whiskey and the bread and whatever because you know otherwise they're they're gonna take. You don't give them what they want. They will take more than you know. Yeah. They will find ways to hurt you. And um, there's something about that. Uh, the, the the small folk, the you know the fairy, the the, the chocho definitely touch on as well, and you can use them as you know. Uh, Robert E. Howard used uh, degenerate serpent folk mm-hmm. in his stories as sort of the uh, connection to the to the wee folk, to the, the fairy of uh, the misremembered myths mm-hmm. of the fairy that turn up in um, his stories, but also. Um, you know, but uh, uh, the Chocho can do that job as well, and um, uh, it, it, particularly for any kind of uh, uh, Asiatic settings, um, I think that's uh, definitely worth remembering. Um, they do not get; uh, they they definitely have that connection to the men of Leng. Mm-hmm. It is suggested uh, that uh, either you know, either the men of Leng are. Uh, their projection into the dreamlands. Uh, I haven't. Seen, I don't know if anyone's suggested it the other way around. Yeah. The or what happens with the mental thing dream. Uh, but it's always possible. Yeah. Huh. yeah although, I'm... although the men of Ling make it pretty clear that they're true masters of the moon beasts, um, and that the moon beasts um, eat the men of Ling whenever it suits them. Um, there's a big thing in there about the men of Ling trading those rubies for slaves that are taken away to the moon, presumably to feed their masters. Mm-hmm. But it's also suggested that um, that this system, you know, is in place because if it wasn't, the moon beasts would just eat their men of Ling slaves whenever it, it struck their fancy. Gotcha. So, and that the uh, men of Lang are, you know, perfectly as part of their alien, uh, non-human way of thinking. They treat that as like, well, that's our place, you know. Yeah, that's if that's what our, you know, divine masters want, then that's what they can take because that's just our role, and it's everyone's role really. And you're you're the ones being the stuck-up retards thinking that your place isn't to be devoured by something. You know, and that's one of the weirdest things about, you know, fear of cannibalism to me is that um, we don't seem to be nearly as worried about being devoured by worms in the grave. Mm -hmm. Um, 
we don't seem to be, you know, that, you know, and, and cremation and funeral pyres and all that kind of stuff to burn the dead so that they cannot, so that they will be taken out of the food chain completely mm-hmm. uh, so that we can, you know, defy our role as <laughs> beings made out of meat, you know, where life is just how nature keeps meat fresh until it's time for you to eat it. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you burn your dead so that you can escape that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, um, uh, we don't seem to get all worried about what happens when we go in the grave. Sort of. I mean, there's a whole industry built around making our bodies unappetizing and unavailable, mm-hmm. uh, to be eaten in the grave. Um, but, uh, again, you know, generally speaking, we're all, you know, one way or another on that cycle. And um, uh, the idea that uh, it is somehow more horrifying uh, that we might be eaten by something that can uh, uh, form sentences and use gerundive, the gerundive tense, you know, uh, we're more upset about that than, say, I don't know, vultures. Yeah. Or, or maggots or a shark, you know. Although, again, there is a kind of a horror of being consumed by something. You know, again, uh, being reduced to just meat, just proteins, just, you know, chains of uh, of nutritious molecules. That is, you know, there is a kind of horror to that. Um, but we seem to be less horrified by it uh, when it involves things that can't have a conversation with us. Yeah. You know? um, and certainly the Chocho's uh, provide that with a kind of... Uh, 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 sniggering, uh, taunting sadism about what your fate is going to be at their hands, you know. Hmm. Um, and uh, and again, you know, that's what St. Campbell's was certainly one of those things that is the a classic, uh, black legend, blood libel, whatever you're looking to hmm. beat up on another people. Um, uh, their magical ability is probably not uh, hasn't been um, nearly explored enough. Uh, as you know, I mean, it's one thing for them to be uh, have sort of you know your standard witch doctor high priest arrangements, mm-hmm. uh, but it's probably even more creepy to imagine that every last one of them, all the way down uh, the line. Um, uh, might have some sort of magical characteristic to them, hmm. you know, um, a, a complete race of sorcerers. Um, Aaron Denbo wrote this really great short story for uh, uh, Del Green Dark Theater. It's called Suicide Watch. And mm-hmm. Part of the story takes place in Vietnam where um, uh, some Army Special Forces group with a local, you know, Montagnard or Hmong levies uh, are tracking a Viet Cong unit and then find out that the Viet Cong unit has been uh, ambushed and by some other group which the the Hmong have a name for but the Americans don't understand it because you know they just start thinking of them as the Burmans but it's clearly the Chocho one of my mm-hmm. favorite bits in it is after the uh, Chocho's ambush first the Vietnamese then later the the uh, Americans, um, they use their sorcery to uh, 
turn the dead from the battle into zombies huh. uh, who proceed to guard the prisoners. And then they walk the zombies through the, the and their prisoners through the jungle back to their uh, villager encampment and then eat their own zombies. There's this thing where they have the long pig that they, you know, want to have. Sure, there's the fresh ones over here, but, you know, mm -hmm. waste not, want not. They get all the, the dead to get up and walk back to the village where they can be served up to the waiting women folk and children and old folks that didn't go out on the hunt. And I, I found that particularly disturbing. I thought Aaron, I gave, give Aaron 10 out of 10 on that one. She, uh, she, she wrote the uh, creepy Vietnamese, Vietnam Chocho -cho story I was, I was hoping uh, would exist, but I never got around to writing. She did a great job with that. Nice. Um, and that, that's another place that throughout the, another Chocho -cho moment. Um, Ted Klein does, T.D. Klein, Ted, T.D. Klein is the best one with Black Man with the Horn. Yeah. In my opinion, it's, it's the best one. Um, Lair of the Star Spawn, you know, the, the Zar and Loigor don't have a lot to do. Mm-hmm. They're kind of boring. Yeah. They're just these two big spaghetti meatball blobs of tentacles, which, you know, and they're, I mean, they're big and they're horrible and they're, they live beneath, in caves beneath the Lake of Dread. But the story is kind of hard to get through. I mean, I, do, do you want to touch on Loigor at this point? Are we done with the Chojos? Yeah, no, I think, I, I think we're done in general. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. I, can, I can, I can stop with the, with the, the Loigor, uh, with, with Loigor and Tsar yeah, yeah. under the, under the lake, but they're, um, they, uh, uh, they don't have a lot of personality. Yeah. They're just, which may be why later writers <coughs> started attaching uh, the Chocho to things like Chognar Fawn. Yeah. Uh, from the horror from the hills and uh, uh, Narlathotep, a uh, black man with a horn, and um, uh, some Chaosium writers. And I want to say, gosh, um, I'll have to go turn around and look at my library here. Um, uh, in Spawn of Azathoth, right? Mm -hmm. Keith Herber attaches the Chochos to the Adaman Islands, hmm. which are those islands uh, in the in the uh, the Indian Ocean, hmm. uh, of which there are some that nobody has that are out of contact. You know about the islands where the Indian government has made them off limits, and mm -hmm. if you go to the islands, the locals will kill you because they're just super hostile. I, so there's wow. <laughs> No, no, I mean, I mean, fishing boats have gotten shipwrecked there, and uh -huh. the locals have murdered the castaways, and you know they've fired spears and arrows at the 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 you know film te teams mm -hmm. who wanted to come mm -hmm. and document them, and the Indian government has basically decided that they're going to leave these people alone, mostly on the grounds that. Um, They've been out of contact with the rest of us for so long that if we did have contact with them, we might murder them all with our diseases. Yeah. Um, and they're super hostile. And some people suggest that the islanders are super hostile because they previously suffered under the uh, uh, attacks by Arab slave traders from Oman hmm. uh, crossing the Indian Ocean back in the, you know, 
1200s, 1100s, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, uh, Islam had that same sort of thing where it's like, uh, oh, they're not in Islam. They're, they haven't been converted. You can totally enslave them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so they would, there was always a lookout for, you know, who doesn't want some slavery? So you don't have to, you know, make your own tea. Uh, you know, uh, they were always on the lookout for new people to, to, to abuse on that department. And mm-hmm. one of the, one of the groups was these folks from the Adamant Islands who have in, have sort of indoctrinated us into their culture that they're absolutely not going to have any contact with outsiders. Outsiders bring uh, – maybe they bring disease. Maybe yeah. they bring – you know, uh, they, they, they take people away. So they just murder everybody on sight. Huh. Uh, they've learned a lesson about outsiders. And they recently murdered this – they may have recently murdered – I think there's something about they murdered this kid who was a missionary who went there – now to spread this like the Adamant Islands, it's the last place that Jesus hasn't been introduced. So I better totally get out there, and they killed him. Oh wow! You know, they killed him for showing up. I mean, it was illegal for him to go to the islands. The Indian government has this thing about no, nope, don't go there. Why not? Because uh-huh. they'll kill you. But why don't you just go in there with the army and beat on them until they stop killing people? Uh, no, we we're not going to do that. <laughs> We've decided not to do that to them. So just don't go there. Yeah. There's no reason for you to go there. Well. This guy found a reason, and he got killed recently by them. And so Herber, before people even heard of these islands, had, had, you know, back in the '80s, had put them in, put put the churches in there. And he, I thinking, I think he connected them to uh, the Dreamland Spider God, um, uh, Alak Nacha. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. <laughs> um, I, I'm always mispronouncing. Uh, that particular, I don't know what it is about that particular critter that I, I can't get right. But um, regardless, they, they hooked him up with the spider god, um, which was a, which uh, ends up being a pretty cool part of uh, Spawn of Azathoth, actually. Um, I uh, am Spawn of Azathoth is not my favorite uh, scenario, and that's a campaign book, but the Adam and Islands part really worked for me. Yeah, it really works. Right. And it's, it's particularly nasty. Uh, Atlach Naka. Yeah, she's the Atlach Naka, the sort of, you know, great old one version of Shelob. Yeah. But um, so other writers have attached them to much more interesting deities because holy cows are and Luigor are not very <laughs> as they're presented in the original story, the, the yeah. Laramie Star. Yeah, no, that's one reason I wanted to ask people, because it's like, I couldn't find anything interesting about them. I'm like, you know, uh, there's some people I know who could hopefully shed some light on those two, and apparently there's not much light to be shed. No, no, there there isn't. Um, They're they're more interesting. I mean, they appeared in later editions of Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think they were there in the first, uh, you know, sort of texts showing the stats for various uh, mythos critters but they showed up later um <coughs> in later editions they may have like turned up in something like the um uh what were they called those sort of uh uh the investigator books that came out later oh, or yeah, keep yeah. compendiums mm-hmm. i can't remember but they, they may have been included in that uh, uh but rather than the original um books at least through I'd say at least through the Games Workshop edition. I guess that was third edition um, that had the you know had the beautiful color plates and 
I think maybe that's the first time I remember them being included in the main book. Same thing with the Loigar. Yeah. Um, they weren't in the original. That is the Loigar of Colin Wilson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Nice. But but that's it. They're, they're about as interesting as they get is the stats in the in the uh, Cogview manual, and that's about it. Okay. Otherwise, not there. Just big lumps of tentacles. <laughs> Good to know. I mean, there's enough of those already in the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, yeah. With with with, you know, they're all your great old ones are always a little better if you can attach them to some sort of principle uh, or some sort of um, concept. Yogg-Sothoth and time, Shub-Niggurath with biology and out of control reproduction. You know, things like that. they then then they sort of have a little bit more meat on their bones that an author can can work with. Now, on the other hand, mm-hmm. does that imply that if Czar and Loigor are, you know, black blank slates, I guess it's time for somebody to step up and and fill them. You know, I mean, uh, that tells me that it's up to one of us here in the third or fourth or 15th, you know, Lovecraft circle or whatever we're calling ourselves to to stand up and do something about these uh, poorly uh, underrepresented, underrepresented monstrosities. You know, they should get some love. And I'm all in favor of that because, uh, you know, I'm a a big fan of – prying open some of the deities that haven't gotten nearly as much love mm-hmm. uh, uh, from uh, how they've been treated or the treatments given to them. So, all right. Uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd say I would take on that mission, but I've got too much love to write <laughs> Yeah, on, on Katana Toa right now. Oh, Another okay. guy who doesn't get enough love. So Definitely. I'll get back to Zara and Oligoi later. Cool. Um, do you have any uh, projects that you're working on right now that you uh, want to plug or anything that's coming up soon? Or? Well, I just finished turning in the second draft of uh, Iconoclasts, which is a scenario for uh, Delta Green. It'll be coming out through Arc Dream Publishing. Uh, it will be a scenario set, rather almost a miniature campaign. It's 70,000 words. It's about 70,000 words. Cool. Uh, 144 pages uh when i turned it in um and it's basically uh it takes place in 2016 during the isil uh occupation the islamic state occupation of the city of mosul in iraq mosul is right across the river from nineveh which is one of the most rich it was the former capital of this neo-syrian empire it's one Mm -hmm. of the richest archaeological finds ever it's where we it's where we found the, the epic of gilgamesh okay okay we don't have the epic of gilgamesh except uh in the middle of the 19th century uh i believe it was a local i want to say it was a local iraqi who was working for the ottomans who actually found um he was a who i don't mean like a digger i mean an actual academic a scholar mm-hmm. who found epic of gilgamesh but the british got in there as well and you know they've they've extracted something like thirty thousand clay tablets from the library of Ashurbanipal, mm-hmm. who was this uh, king of Assyria who took it upon himself to collect books as tribute, mostly because he was interested in divination, uh, using these books to divine the future. But and so he was interested in magic, and he has 
a library and it's got 30,000 clay tablets in it that were baked solid when the, the, the library was burned down. So they went from being soft clay to hard clay, which is oh, why wow. it's fine. And then the British, when they, when, when the, the British like uh, ambassador to Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, he was a diplomat. He wasn't an ambassador, but he was a diplomat with the British uh, legation in uh, Constantinople. When he uh, looted slash uh, excavated the site, he didn't use modern archaeological principles. He uh-huh. found the tablets buried where they were, where the where the library burned down around them. And he pulled them all out, he packed them in boxes, and he shipped them off to uh, London. And then two years later, did it again. And then they were all mixed together, out of order. Okay. So, it has been... There's literally a library full of magical texts in the British Museum that every page or, or clay tablet has been mixed up out of order and combined with different books. Huh. But somewhere in there, if you're me, <laughs> there are going to be, in that haystack, there are going to be the keys to solving your mythos-based problem or starting your mythos-based problem, depending, you know, on how you want to use it. But, uh, yeah, so um, iconoclasts is, is basically the idea that uh, I, I, the, the, the Islamic State drove bulldozers over Nineveh. They knocked down, like, two or three palaces, the Temple of Nud, the palace of, not Ashurbanipal, but another king. Two kings' palaces were, 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 were flattened. Um, they demolished some of the... Uh, human-headed bull, winged bulls that flank the gates of uh, Nurgle and uh, the gate of, I think it's called Makish. Uh, there were 15 big gates around the city. They bulldozed all that. They bulldozed um, some of the wall that had been reconstructed by Saddam Hussein's mm-hmm. regime. Uh, they messed it up bad. When I was watching this happen, I remember thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if archaeology worked like it did in fiction? You know, where you you smash the 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 arch- the, the, the statue uh, of some uh, you know and uh, 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 Inkil the the or Morduk the god of the you know of Assyrians or whatever mm-hmm. or you know Pazuzu shows up and, <laughs> and and smites these guys for uh, disrespecting their you know their statue or their temple or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it would be nice if that worked. And so since it doesn't work that way in real life, I worked it that way in uh, a Call of Cthulhu scenario where some ISIS goons smash an artifact uh, related to uh, a, a avatar of Nathotep and release into the world this avatar. Uh, who leaves in its wake skinless skinless bodies flayed alive by <laughs> thousands of whirling chips of obsidian that uh, skin people alive one fingernail-sized uh, piece of skin at a time. Um, uh, I was pleased. I, I, I got this idea after I learned that there's a site of a volcanic field out in Armenia. Mm-hmm. Uh that um, 
was the site of a of a community that was there from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age, like thousands of years this community was there, and all they did was chip obsidian weapons uh-huh. out of lava flows. They they made axes, spearheads, arrowheads, and and they traded them as far away from Armenia in the Caucasus, all through the Black Sea, all the way to the Aegean. That's how far these weapons got from hmm. this Stone Age, uh, I guess, military-industrial complex. Uh-huh. Um, and it, they found the site because it left behind thousands or millions of these chips of obsidian that are knocked off of the spearhead when you're sharpening it and mm-hmm. knocking the stone. So the first thing the archaeologists found were just these beds filled with chips of obsidian. Hmm. And, of course, the Armenian word for obsidian is the devil's fingernail. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to colloquially refer to obsidian as the devil's fingernail, I am going to make a fucking scenario out of it. That's just all there is to it. So that's so that's Iconoclasts. It's finally done. Cool. Um, there's more Delta Green stuff on the way. Nice. I'm still working on... Uh, I, now I'm going to return to working on Horrors of War for a while um, and uh, get some more of that done before I return to any other projects um, like uh, trying to make Nodens interesting. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> I, I believe I've found a way to do it. Well, cool. Um, I have found a way to do it. Uh, there is a uh, temple in England um, dedicated to Mars Nodens because ah. Nodens is related to the uh, Gaelic or Celtic god Nadua, um, which was a god that was the head of the Celtic pantheon but was maimed and lost an arm. And sometimes it's referred to as now to a silver arm. And so it lost an arm in battle and could never go to war again. So it could not be the leader of the of the pantheon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead engages in hunting, uh, has a relationship with dogs, has a relationship with sea, which one presumes might be about fishing, and has a relationship with cripples, okay. uh, the maimed. So... Uh, I decided that, uh, and there's a temple to Mars Nodens, where the Romans got up there, looked at Nadua in England, and said, yeah, that's like Mars. <laughs> and they built this temple that was being excavated about the time that Lovecraft was writing things like Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath and mm-hmm. writing things like uh, Strange High House in the Mist. Yeah. Um, this was being excavated in the 30s, and some of the things they found was that the buildings in this temple to Mars Nodens were had inscriptions basically saying, you know, by my oath, I have built this this building, uh, you know, Centurion Septimus, you know, whatever. And and a lot of the, the the temple was paid for by Roman veterans. Okay. Right. And there was a kennel on the grounds of the temple, which seemed odd. So you realize that the temples of Mars Nodens was there to look after maimed and crippled Roman legionaries. Mm. And the dogs are there because there's a belief that dogs lick wounds, uh, they will stop an infection. Okay. You know, how dogs lick themselves to clean their wounds. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. There was a, there's an old folktale belief that, that dogs licking wounds is, is medicinal. And it's, it's true that there are some 
uh, antibiotic characteristics to the there, there are some bacterias in dog spittle that will actually kill other bacteria and not go to work on human flesh, but it can also lead to infection. So it's 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 true and not true at the same time. So I have decided to reimagine Nodens as the god of maimed veterans. Okay. So we've been generating a lot of those since 2001. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the idea is we read about Nodens being uh, antithetical to Narlathotep in Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath. So I had this idea where, you know, <laughs> and also because of Nodens' connection to dogs, there's a lot of stuff about how dogs are given to veterans as service animals, hmm. right? Sometimes as companions, sometimes as animals to help them get around. And so I had this idea that in a kind of Son of Sam way where the dogs bring messages from Nodens in their dreams uh, to instruct our maimed veterans that if they descend the various steps to deeper sleep and get and are granted passage past our two sentinels, Clark Ash or whatever their names are, mm-hmm. the other ones mm-hmm. named us down there in the Dreamlands, you can go to the Dreamlands, you can meet Nodens, and Nodens can say, hey, who wants to have their arms and legs back? Who wants to have their eyes back? Who wants to have a mission? Who wants to have a team? Who wants to be part of a war? Uh, Just and righteous one, I totally promise. Um, And so veterans join the cult of Nodens. uh, uh, Wounded, crippled veterans join the cult of Nodens to have their bodies back Mm -hmm. and to return to a life of duty, sacrifice, mission that may be lacking in their lives mm-hmm. once they've been discharged. Um, it, being recruited into this cult is also something that could imperil Delta Green agents who have been too mashed up by encounters with the mythos to continue fighting, mm-hmm. continue going on missions or operations. Um, Nodens can't fix madness, but he can uh, temporarily give you the ability to... Take your limbs from the dreamlands and bring them into the waking world so that you can be whole again, sort of. Your limbs aren't there. They're invisible. Uh, But you can feel the world. You can pick up that handgun with your invisible hand. You know, the one that doesn't leave fingerprints behind. Yeah. You can walk on your invisible legs that don't leave footprints. Or you can sheath them in boots if you want. You can put boots over them so no one can see that you're floating, you know. But uh, and you also can't get shot in your dream limbs, hmm. you know. So uh, they're they, they 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 can operate in our world with their dream limbs so long as they are serving the will of Nodens. Uh-huh. To do that, they have to mutilate themselves in the dream limbs, thus cursing their dream self to the life that they want to avoid in the waking world. Okay. And if you ever stop obeying Nodens, well, he just takes your dream limbs away, leaves you with no refuge from your broken body, either in the waking or the dreaming world. Mm-hmm. So so what do you think? Is Nodens less boring? <laughs> that is a lot less boring. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, and, and, and I'm also hoping to make Katana Toa. Uh, okay. a, lot, a little less boring and some material, uh, <clears throat> which I'm currently calling the Gorgon's Empire, but I'm working on a, 
I've got maybe four out of ten scenarios play tested, and the idea is is one scenario per decade, starting in about 1920 and ending in 2020, where an investigation will take place of the cult of Nodens and what they're up to, yeah. and the investigators will get to experience every era of Delta Green. Oh, wow. What it was like to be in it in World War II, what it was like to be there before World War II, what it's like in the 50s and 60s, what it's like when it's disbanded, what it's like when it's reforming, what it's like in the modern era. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and whatever successes the players get in scenario one, those clues are passed on to make scenario two possible. Okay. And then scenario two is based, scenario three will be based on, you'll know more about what's going on based on what was learned in the previous scenario and maybe you can have a character who can be in two scenarios 10 years apart or maybe even 20 years apart but at some point your characters have to retire yeah huh even if they live that retire and new people have to step in and use the information your first character uh-huh. collected to solve the problem a century later cool so maybe we'll call it the gorgon century <laughs> <laughs> The Medea. So, anyways, the, so yeah, I'm trying to make um, Gatanatoa less less boring as well. Very cool. Um, and uh, so, hopefully, but that's all going to have to wait until uh, Horrors of War gets a lot more love. All right. This this spring. So, anyways, um, don't know what else I've got for you, but I think that's all I'm working on right now. Oh, cool! Very cool. Uh, thank you so much, Scott, for coming on the show and talking about the Chocho and Ligor. You're you're most welcome. I'm 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 happy to bend your ear on the topic. Cool. Um, and I look forward to hearing what Mister uh, Height has to say on the topic too. Because oh, yeah. oh my God, Ken Height, he knows too much. He's a man, <laughs> a man who knew too much. I believe it might indeed be Ken Height, which in some ways proves that none of these conspiracies are real. <laughs> because if they were real, they'd have whacked Ken by now. Oh yeah. I mean. He ended up floating in a barrel in, in, in Lake Michigan by now. You know? that, there's no way they'd let him know this stuff. No way. Unless he's working with them. Yeah, I, time travel. I've, I've always put my money on time travel. <laughs> well, we have the documentation from their podcast. So that's, oh, yeah. That is very likely. All right, sir. All right. Well, thank you so much again, and we look forward to talking to you in the future. Okay. See you in the future. <laughs> See you then. <laughs> I won't even need a time machine. I can just hang out until the future arrives. All but right. then again, by the time it gets here, it's the present. So, shit. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Uh, time travel, man. It'll fry, it, just, it just fries your brain like an egg. Are you still with us? Did Scott scare you off? If not, we've got David Heath. Everyone loves David Heath. He's He's... he's He's that he's that guy. He's 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 the guy who does the Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff. And uh yeah, no, no nothing, nothing that'll cause existential dread about becoming someone else's shit and you becoming nothing. No, no, no. This is David Heath. So, let's enjoy David Heath. And also, I just want to say hey, thank you for listening to uh a minute uh, an hour and 20-something minutes of the show. It means a lot to me that you're here. Uh, Thumbs up to you. If you want, uh, you can send a self-addressed stamped envelope to an address that you can get from me if you message me. 
And I'll send you some stickers. I've got tons of stickers right now for PGTTCM and Black Clock Audio Tales. So if you want stickers, send me an envelope. I'll send you some stickers. If you want to stick, stick some money in that envelope, I won't be upset. But hey, all right, here we go with David Heath and Ligor the Chocho and some silliness. All right, here we go. My name is David Heath, and I write a blog called Dave's Corner of the Universe. And today we're going to talk about two, well actually three, important creatures of the Cthulhu mythos. In fact, one of them is so awesome, it's ridiculous. Yet, we don't talk about this creature. So we're going to start off with two that are more common, and then we're going to talk about the most awesome, most silly, most mostest of any creature that is in the Cthulhu mythos. And how something can be completely silly and amazingly awesome at the same time. Now, I own a lot of books and supplements for the uh, called Cthulhu role-playing game by Chaosium. And this creature that is both silly and perfect has never, to best of my knowledge, ever been written or stat in any of the Call of Cthulhu stories. And we're going to explain why. Or Call of Cthulhu game supplements. And we're going to explain why. But it kind of makes sense. But the other part is, this creature is so awesome that I have never had another conversation with a Lovecraftian unless I brought this creature up. And it is so awesome and so silly that you might explode in a pillar of flames listening to this. So, proceed at your caution. So, my assignment before I brought in this super secret amazing yet ridiculous plot device of a Cthulhu Mythos creature was to talk about Loiger and the Chocho people. And if we're going to talk about the two of them, then we absolutely have to be discussing a August Derelis story called The Lair of the Star Spawn. Right now, there's like 10% of you who are listening are slapping themselves on their forehead and saying, Oh my gosh, I know what he's going to talk about. It's the most amazing creature ever in the Cthulhu Mythos. Or that ridiculous piece of crap. We promised that we would never talk about it, never speak of it. And now Dave's just going on blabbering about this silly, ridiculous thing, which is also amazing. Have I teased you enough about this third creature? So... Let's start with Loiger, which I am sure I'm mispronouncing. Um, and I always mispronounce all the Cthulhu creatures' names, but this one's a stretch, especially for me. So, Loiger and his brother Zahar are star spawn. And they come to Earth, presumably when. Cthulhu and his star spawn came to Earth as 
told in the Mountains of Madness. But instead of being trapped in the Pacific Ocean, they're trapped underneath a jungle in Burma. I probably should put a warning here. Uh, We are going to be going pretty deep into the Lair of the Starspawn, which was written in 1932. So... This book, which is over 80 years old, or short story, which is over 80 years old, there's going to be some spoilers. So you may want to read it first, but if not, uh, I'm going to continue. Uh, So Loiger and Zar are trapped under the jungle and under the earth, and they're waiting for their devotees to bring them forth. And they are tentacle creatures. I always, when I read this, of course, I had read most of Lovecraft's stories. uh, Definitely Call of Cthulhu, Mountains of Madness. And so in my head, the star spawn were basically miniature baby Cthulhus. Um, Derleth describes them more like more just tentacle creatures, but I always pictured them as buried little tiny Cthulhu. So, Lair was written in 1932, but it's set about 30 years before. So, it's about somewhere two, three, four years after, you know, the turn of the century. And an explorer in Burma... Uh, now, I refer to um, the Lair of the Star Spawn as written by... August Derleth. And it's true, but there's so much silly awesomeness in this that it can't be written by just one person. So it was Derleth and Mark Shore. But usually most of the credit's given to Derleth for writing this. Now, the white American of European descent hero in this is named Marsh. Of course it is. Marsh is a family name that Lovecraft uses, so Derleth's using this. So Marsh is the last survivor of this expedition to Burma where he is captured by the Chocho people, who we'll discuss in a moment. He is taken to basically their temple complex where they're going to go ahead and bring forth these twin star spawns. There he meets a uh, Asian gentleman named Fo Lan, who has some powers and who basically astral projects to get help from these creatures to destroy the star spawn as they kill the Chocho and escape. Um, that's the basic story. Now, it is said that in the end of the book, I think something that's kind of cool, actually, is that they're rescued by an aerialist. And this is takes place, you know, basically before plane. So unless Darleth made this huge forgot what where he set the story, which is possible, but I, I don't think in this case, they're rescued by a balloonist. And I want to write something about that balloonist. That is the greatest character ever. We don't even know if it's a male or female. I kind of think it's this female just traveling the world, going through Asia in a balloon, 
rescuing people from, you know, cannibal creatures. Um, but we don't know anything about that character, but I, I love the aerialist in the end. Uh, well, and again, I kind of got off track, but so uh, they call for help. Help comes. They escape. Good guys win because this is a derelict story who has converted the gray nebulous uh, Nietzscheism of the Cthulhu mythos into good versus evil. So we don't see Loiger again until 1969 when Colin Wilson writes The Return of the Loiger. And completely different creature. These are part of the Cthulhu mythos, but they're like invisible dragons and they psychically drain people their energy and they become like vortex energy that can cause airplane crashes but they can also sort of petrify humans from the outside turn their into like leathered mummies this has nothing to do with august derlis loiger and the only reason i can think of is that this is a giant fu derlis I don't know what Colin uh, Wilson was thinking when he created this creature and used Daryl's creature's names, but I, I, I think he was just playing with the guy. Well, we all know what karma is, so people later take Loiger and they make it something that even Colin didn't apply on it being. In the Illuminati trilogy... Loiger just becomes a generic term for the great old ones. And so even um, comic book writers Grant Morrison and Alan Moore start using the term Loiger as a generic term for the great old ones. So we have Loiger, the brother of Czar, which was created by Derleth. Then we have the Return of Loiger, which are like these invisible dragons. And then we have Loiger, just generic term for the Great Old Ones. So when we use the word Loiger in the Cthulhu mythos, there's three meanings. Then we have the Chocho people. And to some degree, I'm always very cautious because I think one of the worst tropes ever to come out of the pulps is the yellow menace, the yellow peril. But the Chocho really aren't, you know, this Fu Manchu, um, Mandarin-type characters that we see come out of the pulps. They're, they're different. And they're not even Asian or, or Oriental. They're alien who have taken on some of the Asian char characteristics. They blend with the human races, or they've made it with the human races, but they're truly actually an extraterrestrial dwarf race. And they are the embodiment of evil. But give Daryl a, a bit of a credit. You know, he creates a relatively positive powerful Asian character to counter them. And it's not quite all the traditional 
at the time what they would have called oriental stereotypes. Uh, they are cannibals, and that's one of the things that is the most scary about them. You read like in the uh, D20 Call of Cthulhu book where it has a whole section written up on them, as well as I think in um, Delta Green where they are have um, restaurants throughout North America and, and they're serving, you know, uh, they're serving human as a type of pork. Um, the Delta Green stories are extremely topical in the fact that they come from Burma and they raid and attack the Vietnamese villages. So there's several stories where, you know, their Vietnam error. In fact, I believe that that's why Delta Green fell was because public their war on the the public found out about their war on the chocho when lovecraft read lair of the star spawn derelith was really eager for praise uh and what lovecraft did and some people say it was sort of like you know side of a left-handed compliment is oh i will use your chochos in a story and they are mentioned in the shadow out of time. But we kind of retconned this too. In 1922, H.P. Lovecraft wrote The Hound. And there's this amulet made of jade that is done by Oriental craftsmen. And especially some of the game companies, they've gone back and said that that was made by the Chocho people, even though the Chochos as a literary concept wouldn't exist for another 12 years until um, until uh, Lair of the Star Spawn is uh, written. Okay, so you've been listening to me about 12, 13 minutes. I'll say, come on, David, tell me about this thing that is so awesome and so silly at the same time. In fact, I think I'm going to create this new thing. So if something is just super awesome and then more you think about, well, it's kind of silly, but it's also kind of awesome, but just maybe not as awesome before I realized it was silly. We're going to now call that the David Heath effect. Kind of like me. I come up as awesome. Then you think I'm a little silly, eh, but I'm still kind of awesome. And this is the Star Warriors. So I told you that Marsh's uh, friend, Fan Lo, he astral projects to find someone in the galaxy that will come and defeat the evil Starspawn and the Chocho people. And he comes across the Star Warriors. Best of my knowledge, this is the only story that has the Star Warriors. And they are these sort of humanoid, but they kind of look like star figures. You know, kind of like... Uh, I thought always maybe like the old 70s, 80s Carl Jr. logo, but spitting out of energy and electricity. And then they ride this cigar-shaped space motorcycle. And then they fly across space, and then they land in Burma, and then they just zap the heck out of the star spawn and the chocho. And they're just shooting electricity, and I imagine them they're riding their cigar-shaped space motorcycles. And when you first hear that, that's, oh, this is cool. And then it kind of sinks in. Like, you know, it's silly. 
but it's still kind of cool. And I kind of imagine him sort of like, you know, Marlon Brando in The Wild Ones, but out in space. And they're sitting around listening to their jukebox, and then they get this message astral projected to them, and then they fly off to, to fight the, the, the Chochos and uh, Loiger. Now, I have never seen stats for the Star Warriors for any Call of Cthulhu game that I've played. And it's kind of obvious, besides being this, you know, deus ex machima, that they come in and they rescue, you know, our trapped heroes at the last moment. You know, that's a very derelict concept that these are the good guys who are fighting the bad guys. That's the concept that Lovecraft didn't have. And one of the things that makes Lovecraft so scary is that the universe is full of creatures that are indifferent to you. You get in their way, they step on you. You happen to be on a planet that they are, and there you're sending out psychic messages in your dream. They'll drive you crazy. They don't care. It's nothing personal. It's how the universe works. Darlow has this good versus evil thing. And the good represented, you know, the Elder Gods. And the Elder God servitors are these cigar-shaped space motorcycle-riding Star Warriors. And I get why they, besides the fact that after a while, they do kind of sound silly, still awesome to me. But, you know, you can't have them just showing up and rescuing your, your investigators every time something goes wrong. But still, I would love to have you know, some story where maybe there's a crazy, insane, or a rogue Star Warrior that the investigators have to fight. But, um, and to the best of my knowledge, The Lair of the Star Spawn is the only story that they appear. And I still think they're cool in a very silly sort of Ed Wood kind of way that they're, but I I like them. And so there you have it. Loiger, the Chocho people, and the Star Warriors. My name's David Heath, and I do a blog called Dave's Corner of the Universe, and uh, hope that you've uh, enjoyed this discussing three underrepresented minions of the Cthulhu mythos. So that's the end of the show, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Ken, to Scott, to David. And again, if you want to check out Ken, check out Ken Height. Just Google him. Scott Glancy, Google him. David Heath, look for Dave's Corner of the Universe. And hopefully sometime soon, by February, middle of February, hopefully, we will have... Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. I'm just waiting for some audio on that so I can get that done and finished and out the door and into your hot little ears. Thank you so much again. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you rate and review and subscribe to podcasts. Thank you again so much. You keep the show going and your contributions help keep me in decent equipment so that I can make these conversations happen with Scott and with Ken, 
and yeah, and help 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 guys like Dave out with their projects. So thanks again, everyone, and thanks for an awesome 2019-2020 so far. All right. Keep it squiggly and stay weird.